Okay, dear friends. So, so the uh, the seek is based on the verse in the portion about Shimon and Levi who wiped out the entire city of Shechem, all the males after they kidnapped Dina. So just to touch upon that for a second, obviously it's a difficult story for our sensibilities. Two brothers went and they wiped out an entire city, basically, all the men. And they did it with a trick. They had them all circumcised. So um, commentary obviously deals with it. It's, it's discussed. And the truth is that uh, on the face, I mean, Yaakov, their father, was upset with them too. Right after it happened, he screamed at them. And again, he rebuked them on his deathbed for kidnapping Joseph and trying to kill Joseph, but also alluding to this. So Yaakov didn't love it. However, however, it's it's a mixed bag because ya Yaakov doesn't rebuke them for doing something wrong. You take a look. He rebukes them for getting him into danger. So if this is wrong, he should have said, hello, you guys are murderers. Get away. Leave me. You know, he didn't do that. He said that uh, you're going to get me in trouble and the nations are going to attack me. So it seems that it was only wrong because it was dangerous. So how do we deal with it? So, again, this is beyond the scope of the Sikha, but just to put it out there, because obviously the Sikha is based on that verse. Um, and the commentaries deal with it in, in many different ways. But the general consensus is this, that Shibbon and Levi were in their right legally. The entire city of Shechem were considered to be accomplices to a communal rape, as it were. Um, it seems that it was a fairly democratic environment. If the people would have protested, they could have stopped it. The proof is that when Shechem wanted to sack to a circumcise, he had to get their permission. Uh, the Torah says how he came and he asked them and they agreed. It wasn't a situation of uh, dictatorship where if you say one word, you get your head chopped off. They had it a voice. And yet no one said a word, take the Jewish girl do what you need to do. It's all good. And therefore, they were all culpable by law, by halacha almost, um, to uh, what they got. However, it was dangerous. Then people say, but you take a look that he rebukes them later. I saw one of the beautiful commentaries. Again, this is just by way of introduction relating to that story, not really directly on the sikha, but it's before you get to the sikha, you know? So um, one of the commentaries say, if you take a look at Shimon and Levi, are they held later in high esteem or are they held in low esteem? What do you think, guys? Low. What do we see in history, the tribes of Shimon and Levi? Hey, Michael, good to see you. So it's explained. Levi is uh, the priest and the, the Levites and the Kohanim are the tribe of Levi. Levi's way up there. You might say Levi is the tribe held in the greatest esteem. If there's another one that's contesting for it, maybe it's Judah for the kings of Israel. Certainly Levi's up there. And arguably, I don't, know, I don't know about esteem, but the most responsibility, the most obligation. Right. But also esteem. Look later, uh, it says that they didn't work in Egypt because they were studying Torah. And they were they were given esteem. What do you mean? The Kohen is holy? Uh, Obligated. Obligated. Kodesh Kadashim. What about Shimon? So nobody talks about Shimon. It's a tribe that's not mentioned much. And it's explained that Shimon actually were punished 
to be, to, they were they were the dustbin of history. It is said that the tribe of Shimon later became poor. I don't know how you can really be poor if the land of Israel was divided up and everybody lived off the land, but somehow they managed to do it. They were a poor tribe. Uh, they were the the uh, rebbies, the cheder teachers. They would travel around. Sounds like they were the original peddlers. And this is part of Yaakov's rebuke to them in the in, in the portion of Ayechi on his deathbed when he says, I will divide them and I will spread them among Israel. You look at Rashi there, that the tribe of Shimon was so poor that they were traveling and they never had a chance to settle down, which would never give them a chance to raise, to wreck such havoc. So there's a commentary, a beautiful commentary that addresses this. It says, why the stark difference? Shim, Levi is held in the highest esteem and Shimon in the lowest. You might say Shimon is held in the lowest esteem. There's other reference to it. If you look at Moses' blessing to the Jewish people on his deathbed, Shimon is omitted. It's the strangest thing. Shimon is omitted from those blessings. Moses blesses all the tribes except Shimon. In order that he should get some blessing, he uh, he hints to them um, in the blessing to Judah, because Judah stood up for the underdog. So in the blessing to Yehuda, it says, Shema Hashem ko Yehuda. May Hashem listen to the voice of Yehuda, and Shema is a reference to Shem. That's how he gets his blessing. And why? Over there is for another wrong that they did, because they were the leaders of the frenzy of immorality and uh, what took place with the with the Midianite women. And Moses didn't like it. It was disgusting. It, it wasn't characteristic of the Jewish people, right? We know the leader of Shimon was the one who, uh, who was slain by Pinchas. They, they messed up. They did something really bad, and it was a terrible plague. So the commentary says like this. They both do the same thing in our portion. These two brothers wipe out the city. Levi is elevated, and Shimon is, is demoted. And it's explained because the motive was different. You know, when you're doing something good, you're giving somebody a hug, the motive doesn't matter so much. If you're giving someone a slap or rebuking someone, the motive is important. If the motive is pure, perhaps that's wonderful. You really love the person, tough love. If the motive is less than pure, then you, you got to keep your mouth shut. Then it's, it's, it's bordering on evil. And it's explained that even though these two brothers did it, Levi did it for Kiddush Hashem. He saw this as a moment to sanctify Hashem's name. This is God's people. And you don't defile our women, our girls. Whereas Shimon, it was more about the honor of the family. It was all about them. Hello, you can't do this. And therefore, they did the same thing. And they were both outraged. But it was a slight difference. And this is an interesting commentary that helps us approach this story. And therefore, Levi, for right or wrong, becomes elevated. Wow, they put their lives on the line. Mesiras Nefesh. They were, could have been wiped out. I mean, they took a big chance. And we see Levi time and again follows that pattern. When Moses needs a tribe to stand up against the Jews who are worshiping the, the golden calf, he calls Levi. He famously says, Mila Hashem Eli, whoever is for God, come to me. And the Torah says, who came? The entire tribe of Levi. And guess what? Nobody else. So Levi had guts and courage in a good way. When Moses needs men, he, he calls them uh, the Hashmanoim in the time of Hanukkah, used that same cry of Moses, Mila Hashem Eli, whoever is for God, come to me. It, it means we're ready to fight, but we're fighting for Hashem. We're fighting for the right thing. We're fighting against those who are, are worshiping the golden calf. Shimon is nowhere to be found. Whereas Shimon, they did it for personal honor and whatever, and therefore it was no good, and therefore they were punished 
it just shows you, obviously, Hashem knows the motive, Hashem knows the heart, and the heart is important, especially in such occasions of, uh, of using zealotry and etc. That's why by Pinchas, who's in the tribe of Levi, who also showed zealotry, the Torah makes a point to emphasize it. He's holy. He brings peace. Peace? He just killed people. No, his motive was completely pure, and therefore the goal was peace, and the result was peace. Um, it's interesting also that this tribe of Shimon, and they're going to tell you they're so holy. They're fighting against the immorality of, of raping Dina. They're the first ones to fall prey to the lustfulness of the Midianite women. So obviously it's indicating that perhaps they're not so holy. They're just looking to get angry and to, to beat somebody up. Okay. Also, by the way, it's an interesting statement in the Medrash, I believe, that the fact that the Jewish people survived their enemies throughout history was thanks to Shimon and Levi's act. Understand. Uh, you know, when, what happens to a baby in embryo is usually important on the baby's life. What happens to a tree, you know, on the, on the baby level of the tree would likely affect everything. It's really, really pivotal. What happens to our people in the biblical stories are, are pivotal. They're not just stories. They're stories that affect everything. You know, Abraham goes down to Egypt. We went down to Egypt. Shimon and Levi, the Jewish people were attacked and raped. Had they not done what they did, says the Medrash, I don't remember the exact source, but I saw this myself in a classic years ago. Their act is what subdued, in a sense, the nations, subconsciously, or what have you, and therefore we survived. It's not like we haven't been attacked, but we survived. <laughs> Do me a favor, Arthur, uh, mute yourself in the meantime. We survived it by virtue of what they did. So there's a lot going on here beyond the surface, good, bad, and indifferent. But uh, nevertheless, uh, at the end of the day, um, they are referred to, they are generally referred to as doing the right thing in this case, even though, again, there was questions of the motive. Okay, let's get into the Sikha. So the Sikha is discussing, I'm going to start by the, the debate about how we know the age of Bar Mitzvah. To me, that's the most interesting part of the Sikha, and we'll build around it. So the discussion is how we... Thirteen. Thirteen. Okay, very good. At least somebody knows that. Okay. But how do we know the age? So it is derived. It, in the, it's derived from uh, this Torah portion, according to one opinion. There are two opinions. Like everything in Judaism. There are two opinions of how we know the age of majority as a Jew. Like if you and I were picking the age of majority, would we pick 13? We'd probably pick 20, 18. I don't know. So... So there are two opinions. One is that it's based on this verse because the Torah refers to Shimon and Levi as Ish, as a man. Ish, Charboy, a man. Each man took his sword. And we know from the calculations that they were both 13 years old. Shimon was already 13. Levi had just turned 13. I mean, they were having kids one after the other, probably every nine months or what have you. And therefore, we know this is sort of an allusion to the fact that Ish uh, is the age of majority. Ish means a man, 13. And the concept, however, however, there is a, a chakira. We haven't had one of these in a long time in our sikhas. It's one of my favorite parts of learning the sikhas with you. That there is a chakira, which means there's an investigative thought process. There are two opinions in Jewish classes. Why is a Jewish boy uh, reaching the age of majority at 13? Which means now you're the age of responsibility, you're really culpable for your behavior. You're responsible for your good deeds and you're responsible to stay away from sin. 
One opinion is that it is based on this verse and that it is a rational thing. Because generally speaking, that's the age when a person becomes a little more mature and they have a little more seichel, a little more maturity. Even though some people mature earlier, some mature later, but generally we go by, by the rule and the Torah sort of tells us, yeah, that's the age Shimon Alevi I refer to as a man. They came of age and that's, uh, that's the age of maturity. However, there's another opinion that says that this is just a rule that we got from Moses without an explanation. It has nothing to do with maturity. A uh, 13-year-old kid is mature since when? But rather, um, this has to do with um, this has to do with a principle. Moses told was told by Hashem, this is the age. Alan, thank you for putting it on the chat. They weren't twins. It's disgusting in commentary. They weren't twins, but apparently they were uh, very close in age. Again, it's not for now, but if you look at how many kids were born in such a short time span, um, they were born one after the other. And uh, they were born, I guess, within the year. I don't know. What do you call them? Chinese twins? Okay. So, so these, this becomes the two sides of the Chakira. Is Bar Mitzvah age rational? Derived from this verse, we decide, Torah is teaching us that that's the age when generally a boy becomes of age to be mature and responsible. And therefore, that's the age. It's not, uh, it's not a rule without a reason. Or no, this is something we got from Moses, and it teaches, and it doesn't have an explanation. Moses taught us many things. They're called shiurim, all the measurements. So, for example, the fact that you have to eat an olive size in order to make a, a, an after blessing or in order to break your fast on Yom Kippur, uh, in order to do the mitzvah of matzah, many, many things. The fact that a mikvah has measurement of 40 so, where do we get these measurements from? Who made them up? So the principle is that all of them came from Moses at Sinai. Hashem just said to Moses, come, let me talk to you. And he gave him a bunch of measures, and they don't really have reasons. They don't really have reasons. So one of them is 13 is mitzvah. So these are the two sides of the chakira. But the Rebbe does in this sicha, first of all, on a legal level, discusses what's the difference between the two sides. And then the Rebbe says, why do we have two opinions? Every time there are two opinions in Torah, it's because it's teaching us two approaches to our service of Hashem. And that's what he does in this sicha. But let's first do the legalese of it. So what would be the difference? What would be the difference, the practical difference of these two sides of the Chakira? So think with me. Think with me. If we say how we, that by 13, a boy is bar mitzvah. We all know, by the way, the girl is 12, right? They consider it more mature. Okay. If we say a boy is bar mitzvah at 13, just because Torah is teaching us that's the natural age of responsibility for most people. Or if we say no, it's just the way the law is. The difference will be, what about a Gentile? When is a Gentile responsible for their mitzvahs? They don't have to do all 613, but they have seven mitzvahs. And when there was a Jewish court, they were, they were these laws were uh, uh, enforced, so to speak. But nevertheless, a Gentile is responsible for mitzvahs, for their mitzvahs. When does that begin? So if we say, right, you got this? If we say that it has to do with maturity, with the natural thing of a 13-year-old child, so it makes no difference if he's a Jew or a Gentile. Maturity is maturity. 13-year-old kid matures at this age, and that would be universal Jew or Gentile. However, if we say that the idea of bar mitzvah age is just a, a, a decree, 
a heavenly decree that God told Moses. It's a Jewish thing. It has nothing to do with Gentiles. When would the Gentile become responsible for mitzvahs, for the seven mitzvahs? When they mature, and each one would mature on their own pace. Some people are 12, some people are 20. That becomes a difference. You got this? Yes? Give me a thumbs up. Yes? So this is a hakira. This is a... This is, again, one of the, my favorite things in learning with you. The Sikhs is showing you how Torah has two opinions and how we develop them and how we apply them. Then there's another difference, which is not in the Sikha, but it's in the footnote. And I think it's quite obvious why the Rebbe doesn't put it in the Sikha. What could be another difference between these two approaches? The difference could be, what if you have a, a Jewish boy who is extremely mature at the age of eight or 10? Could happen. In fact, the Rebbe brings in a footnote that there was a time in the Talmudic days or whatever where people were matured much younger. So then it would depend. If the age of majority is a rational decision based on maturity, so then this kid, so most kids are 13, but this kid is 10 and he's mature as a 13 or 15-year-old. He should be doing a mitzvah. He should be responsible for the mitzvahs. But if we say that it is a decree from heaven, it doesn't make a difference how mature you are or how late your maturity becomes, you have to accept it at bar mitzvah. The Rebbe puts it in the footnote, this second difference. You hear it? The second difference, he puts it in the footnote because uh, this is not something that we deal with today. Nobody is of the opinion today that if a kid is 10 years old and he's mature, you should make him a bar mitzvah. Even though it'd be helpful, the shul is not enough days for everybody. But um, there's no such thing, and the Rebbe doesn't want to open up that can. But in the footnote, he brings down that there was an era from the Talmudic days when children were much more mature, um, and therefore apparently there was an era uh, when uh, when they would say, you know what, stop laying to fill in at the age of 10 or whatever the age was because the maturity was earlier. But again, that would only apply if bar mitzvah age is a rational thing, it's based on nature. But if it's a decree thing, Torah says 13. I don't care how mature you might be. By the way, the previous Rebbe, the Rebbe's father-in-law, started laying tefillin when he was 12 years old. It's not publicized. Now we know. But at the time, it was done in secret. His father looked at the kid, and he knew this kid is responsible for mitzvahs. I mean, I'm not reading his father's mind. But uh, this, is the, this is the fact, that the previous Rebbe started to lay tefillin every single day from his 12th birthday, if I am correct. And perhaps he's basing it on that discussion in the Talmud. So this is the legal side of it. Let me bring it up in a spreadsheet. Um, so what do we got? So again, let's go through this together. What we just did is the first, uh, first half of the page. So the age of Bar Mitzvah is at 13. Why? So we have two approaches. One is that this is based on the verse of Shimon and Levi, referred to in Torah as Ish, because they were a man, they were mature, which means it's a natural thing, it's a rational concept. And the other approach is that this is a law for Moses at Sinai, it's super rational, it's a decree. It is what it is. Practical difference number one is that if we say it's rational, it will apply to a non-Jew too, human beings mature at 13, Jew and non-Jew. However, if we say it's a decree, decrees were given to Jews. This concept of, uh, of the measurements that Moses was given from God, they were given to Jews, not to non-Jews. And therefore, this is a Jewish thing. It has nothing to do with rationale, nothing to do with maturity, really. It's just a, a halacha. It's like, it's like a chok. It's like a mitzvah that's super rational. And therefore, 
the non-Jew would not be by mitzvah, you know, for their mitzvahs at 13. When would it be by mitzvah? Depends on their maturity. Somebody would have to decide if they are the age of responsibility. Practical difference number two, which I threw in from the footnote, that if there was a very mature child, would it or would it not be different? So if, again, it's based on a rational thing of maturity, then it might be different. And I pointed out to you that in the Talmud, the Rebbe says in the footnote, there was such a time when they were mature. Or if it's a decree, maturity level never matters. Okay. Now, so that is the legal side of the sikh. The Rebbe in his signature approach, in one sikha mixes in halacha and the spirituality. Because you might say, so what is the relevance? Why do we have to have two opinions? Bottom line is we all know what the law is. When you're 13, you have your bar mitzvah, nobody does it at 12 or 10. It is what it is. Why is it important for us even to study this Torah in addition to the mitzvah of Torah study? But what is the message? So the Rebbe says, there's a principle whenever we have two opinions, and these opinions are said by great sages. Uh, these are all, uh, you know, I don't know, prophets or what have you, sages of Torah. So their opinions carry water. Their opinions are real and holy. And therefore, says the Rebbe, they are teaching us two approaches in serving Hashem, a rational approach or a beyond rational commitment. In the language that Brian would use, Nasa Benishma. The two words that we said at Sinai, this is a recurring theme in Beni Sichos. We had it a couple of weeks ago. Uh, when you got the Torah at Sinai, what did we say? First, we said we accept it. We're servants. Then we also said we will study it. We're also going to be your children or your students. And Hashem wants both. And we know that from the fact that the Talmud tells us that when the Jews said, uh, we will do, and then we'll understand the angels came and put two crowns on the head of every Jew. Obviously, metaphysically, one crown was for we will do, and one crown is for we will understand. And if the idea is only that you're supposed to accept without understanding, so why does two crowns? It should be one crown. And the explanation is because Hashem wants both. The beauty is he wants both. On the one hand, Judaism is predicated, is the foundation of it is acceptance. Because if I'm just doing Judaism because it makes sense, it's a system that works well, and, it, and it, it, it makes for a good life. So where am I showing my service to Hashem? I'm doing it because it works. If tomorrow, God forbid, I discover that something else works better, or this doesn't work for me anymore, I walk away. So I'm not really in it for Hashem. So therefore, the foundation of our service is the service of a servant. Commitment, faith. By the way, it's true in every relationship. If you're really committed to the person, you're not committed just that you're committed beyond. beyond. You're committed... Uh, in, 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 if you're in a real a committed relationship, it's 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 non-judgmental. It's non it's unconditional. Otherwise, today you like me, maybe tomorrow you change your mind. You like someone else better, or something happens, God forbid, and suddenly you decide it's not worth to stick around. So, if it's a real committed relationship, it's based on commitment. But then, at the same time, we discuss this like every few weeks in our sikhas. Hopefully, the other person in the relationship says, "I know you're committed." but I also want you to be connected with me. And therefore, and this is certainly true with Hashem, if this is true with another person with Hashem, it's much more so true because ultimately with Hashem, He is infinite and beyond rationale. And if I approach a relationship with, with God just with my mind, I'm not really relating to God because God is beyond rationale. The fact that He and His kindness allowed us to understand the reason of Bitzvah is His kindness. He's, he, he, he made that miracle and gave us a Torah because He wants us to be into it. But really, 
what we understand in Judaism is not even 1% of what it really is about. So really, if you want to really relate to Hashem, it's got to be out of commitment. However, Hashem says, I also want you, I want your mind, I want your heart. Don't just stop at commitment. Says the Rebbe, that's what's happening here. I mean, this is a very common theme, but the Rebbe is fitting it into the Bar Mitzvah debate. That we have one side of the debate that says it is a decree. So the application of it, when you come 13, we tell you you're approaching Judaism. Your first Shalom Aleichem, your first hello in Judaism is Hashem is the boss. There is no why, no questions asked. And as expressed in the fact that even the age of Bamit is just a decree. However, there's another approach. Remember, both are true. That it's a very rational thing. And when you're 13, you're going to start to mature. You're going to start to feel responsible, etc. And that is telling the same Bar Mitzvah boy that even though you're accepting Judaism out of commitment, you should now recognize that if you study it well, you will begin to appreciate it. You will begin to enjoy it. And you don't have to just do it merely out of subjugation as a servant. Hashem wants you to be his child or he wants you to be his, his student. He wants a real connection even on our level. So that becomes the difference in the approach for serving Hashem, which is, to my thinking, brilliant. The Rebbe is taking this halachic hakira, halachic debate, seemingly no real relevance, and suddenly it has relevance in terms of our service of Hashem, and it brings home the fact that each opinion in Torah is real and is uh, and matters. So the Rebbe says, based on this, we will see a few things. First of all, we'll see the verse that it's based on. So I'm now on the line where it says verse focused on. This is already technical, showing the derivations of where things come from. So if you ask a student of Torah, which verse in Torah do we learn by mitzvah? From our Torah portion, ish. However, the Rebbe points out that when the Rebbe's of Chabad would say a maimar, a Hasidic discourse in honor of the bar mitzvah of one of their children or grandchildren, they would often, it sounds almost invariably, but certainly often they would open the discourse not with this verse, ish, but with the verse in Genesis where Hashem says, Nasa Adam, let us make man. And the Rebbe says, this is very curious because Adam and Ish are two different meanings. We know there are four references to man in Torah man or mankind, and they are Adam, Ish, Gever, Enosh. These are four references. And they don't mean the same thing. Adam represents man on the intellectual level, looking for truth. Ish represents primarily man on an emotional level, albeit, as the Rebbe says in the Sikha, a mature emotion, an emotion that is governed by rationale. He's not just a kid, it's just emotion-based. It's emotion governed by rationale, whereas Adam is a higher level where it's really about intellect. I want to know the truth. No matter how I feel, that's inconsequential. So that's Adam is the highest level. Ish represents emotion. And then it's not for the Sikha, but uh, Gever represents physical brute force. Gever is in the word Gibar. If someone is a strong person, you might say he's a Gever. And Enosh, Enosh denotes weakness. Enosh represents the human frailty, etc. And these are four terms used interchangeably in Torah, but they're not random, they're not interchangeably. Each one is in its own place. So Adam means intellectual maturity. Ish means emotional maturity. 
And normally we say a bar mitzvah boy is not intellectually mature. He's starting to become a little bit emotionally mature. And that's why we use the word ish. So why would our Rebbe's begin the discourses with the verse Adam? See, this is a problem for the Rebbe. I'm not going to tell you that I will sleep over this question. But to the Rebbe, you know, if 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 the his if, if all the former rabbis used a certain language related to bar mitzvah, then it's it's not by accident. So the rabbi says it's exactly this conversation, because it's both. Ish means uh, uh, emotional maturity, and it means a, a a a natural type of relationship with Hashem. As for that column. Adam means a different high level. Adam, in this case, says the Rebbe, not only it means intellectual maturity, but Adam, it's brought down is the same letter as the word ma'od. Ma'od means very, limitless. Like we say in the Shema, love Hashem, not only with your whole heart and life, but with all your might. And it means that a person is ready to sacrifice their life for Hashem. Total dedication on that level that we're talking about, beyond rationale, I'm a servant to Hashem, come what may. Says the Rebbe, now it makes sense. Where do we derive by mitzvah from? Normally from the verse of Ish, because it is about Ish. It's about an emotional maturity and about a limited level of maturity, which makes sense and is experienced by the human being. Conversely, the Rebbe's started their discourse with the word Nasa Adam. Let us make man alluding to me'od that we have within us by virtue of the neshama, the ability to connect to Hashem limitlessly, infinitely, and that is also part of bar mitzvah. That is also part of the approach. What does bar mitzvah mean in this sicha? The approach to Judaism. Every day you can become bar mitzvah when you wake up in the morning and you you embrace mitzvahs. That's your. That's uh, the idea is that when I when I approach mitzvahs, I approach it not just as ish, rationally and experientially and feels right, but no, ma'od. I'm in it. I'm in it for good and for bad. I'm in it. I'm totally dedicated, and that is alluded to in the Nasa Adam. Parenthetically, I'm going to add my own personal observation. I'm assuming that the Rebbe's were saying this for their children and grandchildren who were on a higher level. However, the Rebbe doesn't say that. And the Rebbe teaches that if the Rebbe's said this, it's really a lesson for everybody. And therefore, the Rebbe says, this is what it might mean, uh, alluding to this dual relationship in Bar Mitzvah. And therefore, Ish is irrational, and uh, Adam is the commitment beyond in a way of self-sacrifice. Oh, and the Rebbe says that we see this even in the story of Shimon and Levi. On the one hand, they're referred to as Ish. Ish means they became of maturity. They came where they're mentally mature. The mind is controlling the emotion. On the other hand, hello, what they did was a very emotional thing. That's a problem. Says the Rebbe, but on the flip side of it, what they did was a complete self-sacrifice. They could have been killed in one second. They didn't know how the story would end. And they felt, certainly Levi, as I mentioned earlier, but for the moment, both of them, that this, this didn't matter. They must stand up for the Jewish people and what they did will affect all of the future, etc. And therefore, they, on the one hand, they were ish. We learned by mitzvah from two boys who turned 13. On the other hand, what were the two boys doing at 13? doing something rational or doing something which was totally uh, self-sacrifice because that too is told to the Bambitsa boy when you approach Judaism, don't just approach it rationally, approach it with a total commitment, which we see in their case. And the Rebbe gives an example to this. Again, there are many, 
you know, the most plain example might be Nasev and Ishma at Sinai. But um, that we see that Hashem wants both sides. The Rebbe gives an example from a verse in Deuteronomy. See, I have presented you with good and evil, life and death. And the verse continues, you should choose life. And the question is, what do you mean? If you gave me a choice of good and evil, life and death, of course I'm going to choose life. Like, how is that even a choice? Why does it have to say the second half of the verse? It should just say the first half of the verse, and we know what to do. And the explanation is given that Hashem wants us to choose life because he said so. It's a mitzvah. It's a mitzvah in Torah. Hashem says, thou shalt choose life. Don't choose it just because it's good and because it's life. Choose it because I commanded you to do it. So right in that verse, I believe this is borrowed from other commentaries, this, this point. Right in that verse, we see two sides of this relationship. And again, this is not just another verse. This is a pivotal verse that Moshe is saying to us just on his deathbed, laying out the groundwork of what Judaism is going to be about. And what is it about? It's about this dual relationship. On the one hand, I want you to appreciate the value of Yiddishkeit and see that life, according to Jewishness, is good, it's healthy. It makes life work. It makes marriage work. It makes, it makes you happy and healthy. It makes you fulfilled. In the language I've been using lately, it's painting by number. Suddenly you're living a good life and you see good things happen. And people say, you're such an artist. Now nah, I'm painting by number. I'm following the rules. It really works. A life of Yiddishkeit and morality, etc., is the most fulfilling. By the same token, the verse continues, but that's not why I do it. That's not the only reason why I do it. I do it because Hashem said so. And therefore, the value of that is now I'm doing it as a servant. I'm not just doing it because it works. If I'm just doing Judaism because it works. Hey, what if tomorrow I change my mind and decide it doesn't work? There were times when Jews stuck with Judaism and it didn't work. It meant, it meant exile or it meant uh, worse. So if it's just a rational commitment, it won't always work. And B, even if it does work, it doesn't really show that I'm committed to Hashem. I'm not a servant of Hashem. I'm doing it because it works for me. And therefore, Hashem wants both. And this is a fundamental teaching. Again, it's over and over in the Sichas. And it's apparently something important uh, that we should internalize this idea. We should approach Judaism with the latter, but then also come to the former. We should Our approach should be and again, this is a bar mitzvah sikha, which means it's the first approach. How I approach my bar mitzvah, how I approach mitzvahs, it should all be about Hashem and the commitment. But then, because I'm committed, Hashem says, but don't you want to know about me? Learn the Torah, enjoy the mitzvahs, you'll see that it works. All of these things will follow, and all of these things are also important. And together, we're sort of giving Hashem our soul, and we're also giving Hashem our minds and hearts and not just a general commitment alone, because then um, I didn't give it myself. I mean, the analogy of the marriage is a good one. I want your commitment, but I also want your love. I also want your respect. And therefore, that becomes what the Rebbe is telling us in this sikha. Alan. 